Water, water, everywhere, and all the boards did shrink. Water, water, everywhere, nor any drop to drink. It's been another year of record-breaking temperatures. The UK Met Office issuing its first ever red warning for extreme heat. This deadly heat wave is also gripping parts of Europe. Temperatures have soared across Queensland. As Japan is experiencing a record-breaking heat wave. Earlier this summer, after weeks of drought, a simultaneous heat wave sparked wildfires in France, Greece, Portugal and Spain. Meanwhile, parts of America are experiencing their hottest summers ever. Rising temperatures are putting immense stress on one of the planet's most important resources, water. Italy has declared a state of emergency as millions grapple with the worst drought in the country in 70 years. Now strict water restrictions come into effect for millions of Californians shortly. Authorities in South Africa's Nelson Mandela Bay are racing against time to prevent taps running dry. The UN reckons that half the world's population could be living in areas facing water scarcity by as early as 2025. Some 700 million people could be displaced by intense water scarcity by 2030. With water covering 70% of our planet, it can be easy to think that there will always be plenty of it. But 97% of that water is salty, 2% is frozen in ice caps and glaciers, leaving the final 1% as drinkable. It seems intuitive, then, that one solution to our water woes would be to turn the overabundance of salt water into clean, safe, drinkable water. But in practice, that so far has proved to be difficult to do in a way that is cheap, scalable and energy efficient. But things are beginning to change. Welcome to New Foundations. In this episode, we're looking at how leaps in desalination technology could help us address global water shortages and deliver universal access to safe, clean, drinkable water. This podcast is supported by Pictay Wealth Management, and we thank them for their support. Water scarcity is a global problem, affecting every continent. Population growth, rising incomes and urbanisation are pushing increased demand for water in agriculture, by households and in industry. Rising temperatures, meanwhile, are increasing demand for water and climate change is also having an impact on water supply, water quality and the health of our rivers. Today, 44 countries, home to a third of the world's population, face high levels of water stress. We still have not delivered universal access to safe drinking water to humanity. And I find that to be appalling. This is Will Sarney, founder of water consultancy Water Foundry and author of several books on water strategy. Water has always been a, a critical resource issue for economic development, business growth, uh, ecosystem health and social well-being. And what we are seeing right now are the very acute and very immediate impacts of climate change. And the way to think about it is that, you know, in a lot of ways, water was broken well before we figured out climate change. Climate change is a threat multiplier, and it threatens water security. And again, we're certainly seeing that in the American West, the Colorado River Basin, California, but we're seeing it in other watersheds where we're seeing a decline in surface water availability. We're seeing an uh, increase in groundwater pumping, essentially mining groundwater. 
and the impacts to state, country, regional economies, businesses, and uh, uh, social well-being. So, you know, the ability for people, humanity, to access safe drinking water. Desalination will play an important role in producing the fresh water the world needs to meet rising demand. This is the process of removing salts and other minerals and contaminants from seawater or brackish water and making it safe for human consumption. Stripping seawater of its salt is ideal not just because seawater is abundant, but because it's reliable. Unlike rivers, rainfall or groundwater, its supply is not susceptible to natural disasters, drought or depletion. But desalination is both expensive and incredibly energy intensive. Finding a way to do it cheaply and on both small and large scale could be key to a sustainable water supply. The technology today is more or less unchanged since the 1960s. The most common methods either use heat to evaporate water and separate it from its salts before recondensing it to collect drinking water, or by pushing water through membranes at high pressure, a technique called reverse osmosis. When it comes to large-scale desalination, obviously, uh, reverse osmosis is by far the most widely used technology for large-scale seawater desalination. Professor Chi Lin Lee of Rice University, Texas, is Associate Director of NEWT, that's the Nanotechnology-Enabled Water Treatment Centre, a research centre looking at how emerging technology can address water challenges. I asked her why this technology has yet to really solve our water problems. First of all, it's still very expensive. And another issue is that the water recovery is relatively low, right? We recover somewhere between 25 to 50% of fresh water from that seawater and the rest goes back to the ocean. So what researchers and innovators have been working on various aspects to reduce the energy intensity of this technology, also by enhancing the water recovery. So can we extract more fresh water from it without uh, increasing the energy consumption? So the goal is for it to be cheaper than the current technology. So if you look at large-scale um, seawater desalination, usually the desalination step, usually more than half of the cost is associated with energy use, so electrical energy use. Now, if you don't have to use electricity or the electricity comes from a very cheap source, and then you're saving a significant portion of the cost. So it's our goal is to make this technology low-cost enough that can be more broadly used. Advances in energy technologies are starting to lower the costs of desalination. Renewable sources, particularly solar, could power smaller scale plants in particular. But improvements in the underlying technology are what's really needed. Will Sarney again. Where I see it going, and I would say many of my colleagues, is that if we can improve membrane technology that helps us reduce energy costs, that's going to be a very important trend. Also looking at alternative sources of energy, and we're seeing that now in terms of, well, can you use renewables, primarily solar, as a way to power desal technologies, either you know small or, or large scale? Speaking from the U.S. perspective, I see a lot of opportunities in brackish water, so uh, you know, pumping uh, deep groundwater that is brackish, not as concentrated, potentially as seawater, and using that water 
for uh, multiple purposes. So it's going to be in the membrane technology improvements. It's going to be in uh, on the energy side of the equation, and also innovative applications in, in areas that are not immediately adjacent to an ocean. Location is key. Many places will not have access to large oceans. But the problems in applying the technology go a lot deeper. There are other considerations too when it comes to understanding why there aren't more smaller local projects and why there could be issues in the future. Chi Lin Li. Any water treatment systems at reasonable scale require significant infrastructure, right? And the infrastructure is usually not a short-term project, and so it takes years of planning and implementation and also quite expensive to maintain and keep the operation going. So what happens in a lot of communities is when there is a drought and everybody panics and think we need to put in the best technology in the world to make sure we have clean water, but as soon as the drought goes away, it was put behind people's mind. And so the, really the lack of planning and the recognition that we are going to be in this state for a very long time and we need to really plan fully for these situations that may be coming at us in the future. People expect water to be very cheap, but with these challenges we're facing, water cannot stay very cheap anymore because the technologies we're using in many places where they used to have abundant groundwater and surface water, agricultural water use is completely free, right? But if you ever use any treatment that cannot be free and we can never compete with free. This podcast is supported by Pictet Wealth Management. Rosa San Giorgio, head of ESG at Pictet, sees more to be done to balance water supply and demand and desalination as just one technology that will play a role. Water is an essential human right, and today we are already struggling in humanity because not everyone has access to safe water. You know, around 2 billion of people lack safe water, and 3.6 billion lack safe sanitation. When looking at the economic effect of water scarcity and climate change, I think we should uh, talk about uh, the matching of water supply and water demand. And while water supply, we are seeing it reducing because of climate change, water demand is increasing. And the potential mismatch between this decreasing water supply and increasing water demand could be accounting for around 45% of economic growth at risk by 2050. We see a lot of innovation for example, uh, recycling wastewater in harvesting stormwater with new technologies. We see innovation in water conservation. We see innovation in water quality testing and even in uh, better ways of collecting data about water. And this makes me think about the demand side, where we are seeing a lot of innovation in agriculture with what is called farmer-led irrigation. So using less water to achieve a better result. That was Rosa San Giorgio of Pictet Wealth Management. Globally, there are about 16,000 desalination plants pumping out about 100 million cubic metres a day. But that only accounts for a small fraction of total human use. However, we could be at a tipping point, as smaller scale startups, sometimes using expertise from other industries, 
are emerging in this space. For Will Sani, water advisor and author, it's essential that we use every tool available. Desalination has evolved over the past several decades, uh, not just from a technology perspective, but from a cost reduction perspective. We very likely will continue to see that over time. Certainly the challenges with respect to desal is at high capital cost, high O&M operating and maintenance costs. You know, as I recall, roughly 50% of operating and maintenance costs are for energy. So it's, it's very energy intensive. And there's the challenge, if you will, the issue of brine production and disposal. So while it has evolved very nicely over time in terms of a technology that is addressing some of its, its challenges, you know, it, it still remains a viable option with a lot of promise and uh, innovative partners, technology companies, startups, and, and countries are, are really pushing the envelope and, and really uh, addressing uh, some of the needs. One startup working on a new and energy-efficient approach to desalination is Desalinator, who earlier this year launched their first large-scale project in Dubai, in the centre of Jabal Ali. These are our PVT panels. PVT stands for Photovoltaic Thermal. These are our patented panels that basically create the two ingredients that we need to drive our process, electricity and hot water. So if you were to come to one of our plants, the first thing that you would see is a pretty sizable solar array. Louise Bleach is the Vice President of Business Development at Desolinator. What's different about ours is we use uh, PVTs, so photovoltaic thermal. We harness not only the electrical potential, but the thermal potential of the sun. So the electrical energy we use to run our pumps, our computers, our auxiliary system, and the thermal energy, so the heat, that is what we use to power our desalination vessels. So I would then lead you to these large, uh, quite steampunk-looking MED vessels. This stands for multi-effect distillation. And essentially, they are these large titanium chambers where we take in seawater, we use that heat to produce st steam, and we flash evaporate seawater or contaminated water into different chambers under pressure. And this produces one, steam, which is pure H2O, which we collect and condense. And then the second is it produces a low concentration brine. So once we have the product water, the brine would then go into our zero liquid discharge system. So further taking out the water and then uh, basically producing a salt, which we can sell back to industry. But the, f the final bit which ties everything together is the energy management system. So we use a combination of thermal batteries and electrical batteries, which means that we can operate 24 hours a day. And there are some smart tricks which are in the entire system of how we're continuously recycling and storing heat and putting it back into the system to make it as optimal as possible. Although they are not currently competing with the world's largest desalination plants, Desalinator have uniquely placed themselves to tackle what they call the missing middle. From a water perspective, you have two sides of the spectrum. So you have centralised infrastructure. You can think of that as piped infrastructure. You can think of a desalination plant attached to a giant city. 
And then on the other side, you have household products, basic filtration devices, to a certain extent, a borehole would be an example of a household water provisioning solution. But then you have these bits in the middle where it's for slightly smaller municipalities or, for example, you are a business that requires your own water source. That's sort of where there's a lot of solutions which are currently missing. There are many startups seeking to improve desalination, but it's not always as straightforward as having a new technology. Will Sani again. The challenge with you know any startup early growth stage company is certainly on the technology side, but it's also what's the business model, the team, uh, securing intellectual property, and, and certainly uh, securing financing and through your growth stage. So I don't know that any of the advanced technology companies are fundamentally any different than any water technology startup that has a technology, has intellectual property, and is out in the marketplace looking to secure funding for their growth. It takes time. It takes a fair amount of capital, uh, a lot of patience, uh, and, a, and a really smart, experienced team. And where this is all going is moving towards off-grid, localized systems in addition to centralized systems. So the way to think about it is that right now we have centralized water and wastewater treatment plants. That really dominates the marketplace. And with technologies, can we promote small-scale, localized systems that are more sustainable, more resilient, and increase water security? Professor Chi-Lin Lee agrees. I think if there is a way to raise more awareness on how difficult it is to basically commercialize a water-related technology, I think will be wonderful for this community. Because traditionally, if you look at the time it takes for a water-related technology to be commercialized, it's significantly longer. It takes seven to eight years for a water technology to be commercialized. That is a successful one. Of course, there are many of them that are not successful, not because they're not good technologies, because they're just not enough interest investment because of the long return of the investment, right? And so it's very challenging. It's a very big problem, yet there has not been enough interest from the private investors or or venture capitalists in this space because they all expect a very rapid return of their fund. But in the water space, that's very, very challenging. For Louise Bleach, overcoming these issues involves more than just advancements in technology. For us, it's now very much focused on what we call productizing our offering. So instead of just offering an infrastructure solution, we actually want to offer a, a product. So what we're working on with some engineering firms is how to optimize the desolinator units so that they can be prefabricated and then placed in to be able to fit in 40-foot shipping containers that can just be optimized for shipping. And then you have what is essentially a plug-and-play solution. And the second thing which we're working on, which we will be um, executing over the next few years, is a business model to be able to support that. And I think what's really interesting in the field of 
not just water, but also energy generation is these new innovative business models that can sidestep the challenge of the fact that infrastructure is incredibly capital intensive and requires usually a large upfront cost. So what we're working on now is what's called water as a service, very similar to what utilities are doing today. Um, But we're working with some large climate financing funds who finance the asset. And then it means that we can go to governments, we can go to customers and say, don't worry about paying for the asset up front. Don't even worry about operating or maintaining it. We will do all of that for you. What we will give you instead is just a monthly water bill. It will be the same cost as what you're paying now, if not cheaper, but it will come with all these environmental credentials as well. So I think for the future of the industry, not just for us, but for other similar hardware startups, it's the combination of making your solution market competitive and something that is very different to what people are seeing today, basically a product instead of just traditional infrastructure, but also innovations around the business model that enable you to scale and removing most of the traditional barriers. That's it for this episode of New Foundations. If you liked what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks again to Pictay Wealth Management for their support. You can find out more about the series, as well as articles and further reading, at impact.economist.com forward slash new foundations.